You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk and Nowhere to Run. My name is Chris. Thank you so much for downloading this episode and letting me into your world for a time. I want to first take a few brief minutes, and I'm going to try to keep these show notes to a very minimum, and say that I appreciate everyone that has sent questions into the BibleProphecyTalk.com website for the podcast, and I'm going to be using them uh, for this episode, and I just want to encourage people to continue to do that. It's been so helpful. So if you have any question about Bible prophecy, small, large, easy, hard, whatever, please send them in to me. It goes directly to my email box, and it's really easy to do. BibleProphecyTalk.com, sidebar, name, question, hit send, that's it. Another quick note about the upcoming book, False Christ. It should be out really, really soon. Maybe a week, maybe two, maybe three, I don't know. Um, I just spent the last week and a half recording the audiobook. I tried to re-record a lot of the stuff that I had done in the podcast because the edit was different and had clearer language and wanted to master the audio and make it as good as possible. I'll try to just re-upload those to the podcast feed. So um, if you want to revisit the audiobook, the free audiobook on the podcast, it'll be the new audio. Um, but so the the book is in the the stages of of getting prepared and all the stuff that is on the, in the final stages, but it's going to take just a little bit for me to to actually get it out there. So the best thing for you to do is to sign up for the email list at the website BibleProphecyTalk.com. I really really recommend that because it's it's the best way for me to communicate a lot of issues that uh, I can't get to in any other way. So and I don't send them out at all hardly. I mean I send them out maybe once every two months, so it's not going to be a spammy situation, but it is really helpful. So if you have the time, if you're on the website asking a question especially, go ahead and and sign up for the e-newsletter there. All right, in this episode, I'm going to take your questions and answer them. The first question I'm going to answer is, what about the Catholic Church? Does it play a role in the end times as many people believe that it will? Secondly, we're going to going to talk about the Antichrist. Is he possessed by Satan? A lot of people believe that. What uh, are the proof texts for that? What do I think about it? And thirdly, we're going to talk about the pre-wrath and pre-tribulational rapture positions. What is the danger of, uh, and pros and cons, if you will, of believing each? And some interesting thoughts come out of all of these. Some of them took longer than others, but I hope you enjoy it. So let's start with question number one. JP asks, Chris, perhaps I missed the podcast or don't remember a direct response to the idea of the Catholic Church being the Antichrist. What would be your top ten reasons against this idea or how aspects of this idea could be true in prophecy? All right, this is a good question. And I think that for this, it's important to realize that a lot of people hold to this view because of the people that they respect in terms of the early writers, particularly the reformers, so anybody that has um, a lot of respect for the early Puritans or you know the early Calvinists will tend to gravitate towards this view because all the or most of the early reformers believed it, and I have to say with good reason, because this view when it first started, which is probably around the 14th century is the first mention or idea that the Catholic Church was in some way uh, the beast system or that the Pope was the Antichrist. Again, there's a lot of different views as to how it all plays out within this umbrella of the Catholic Church being a part of the system or the system itself. In the 1400s, it started and kind of trickled down to the Reformers, and it makes a lot of sense from their perspective. It's it's really important to try to get into that context of what they were dealing with. The Can you imagine a church that didn't believe the true gospel? I mean, saved by um, grace through faith alone and Christ alone seems so obvious from the scriptures, but it was essentially considered heresy at the time. You just couldn't believe it. And if you did believe the true gospel and preach it, you were considered a heretic and killed 
um, under the direction of one guy, it was so tempting to see that as the Antichrist because the prominent thing that you think about when you read about the Antichrist is that he is going to be a persecutor of Christians because of the gospel. So, in my opinion, a lot of the people who were going through centuries and centuries of literally being burned alive and tortured to death in the most gruesome possible ways because they believed and preached a true gospel, um, they wrote with great passion and fervor that this was the Antichrist. Can you even imagine what would we do if that was happening today? If Barack, <coughs> Barack Obama, for instance, was rounding up and killing people who believed and taught the true gospel as contained in the scriptures. Even if he wasn't the Antichrist, there would be a flood, a flurry of people writing commentaries about how Barack Obama is the Antichrist. Not that they don't do that already, but the, the, the temptation for true believers in Christ to see that as the Antichrist would be overwhelming. Now, we know that persecution is, uh, is the norm in the Christian life. It has taken a hiatus in America for a while, and that's great. But it's not just the Catholic Church that has been doing that. If you go before that, it was the, uh, the emperors in Rome, and before that, it was the establishment in Jerusalem. And it has gone on and on since then. So the persecution of, of Christian believers is not unique to the Catholic Church, though it had a lot of power during that time. So I see you have to see this in context of people that that had a great reason to see that as the Antichrist. And so that's really part of it. So what did they write about it and how did they make it happen? Now, when I read the people who were convinced of this idea, I am struck by the necessity to allegorize to the point of... Um, something it's so fu it's so funny in a sense with the reformers because they were so serious about getting a hermeneutic right when it had to do with the true gospel if if you want to look at the reformers and their main their main thing was about the gospel and that we need to interpret scripture literally and in order to determine how one is saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and that was the focus of most of what the reformers were doing. They were trying to say, look, you guys are interpreting the Bible in all these flimsy allegorical ways, when in truth, we just need to read what it says and, and sit under its judgment. But when they wanted to prove that the Roman Catholic Church was the Antichrist, they kind of abandoned that literal hermeneutic in favor of, you know, it says that, but maybe it really means this, and there's a lot of this sort of allegory allegorization that goes on in order to jam the idea that the Catholic Church is the Antichrist or the Pope is the Antichrist into the scriptures about the Antichrist. And I would say that a majority of the focus of the idea that the Pope is the Antichrist or the Catholic system is the Antichrist is in the chapters in Revelation, Revelation 16, 17, and 18 about Mystery Babylon. So and as many of you know, I I think that the correct interpretation of Mystery Babylon needs to be literal because the angel interprets John's vision about a woman riding a beast with seven heads and ten horns as literal. When the angel starts to say, what you just saw is this, he doesn't talk in allegorical language. He talks in flat-out, literal interpretation of the dream. The woman you saw is a city. There's going to be ten kings. There's going to be you know, wars and famine, and there's going to be all the stuff he starts to talk very literally. And that's an especially important time to say, look, let's not, let's not uh, uh, wave our hand towards the stuff that the angel is saying about this vision. Let's pay attention to what he said and, and, and take it literally and seriously. Now, I won't belabor the point about what I think Mystery Babylon is, but um, you can see my book, Mystery Babylon, When Jerusalem Embraces the Antichrist. 
but I don't even think it's necessary to uh, hold my view to know that it's not talking about Roman Catholicism. When I read, for example, Dave Hunt's book, The Woman That Rides the Beast, I am struck with how little he actually deals with the text and how much, I mean, the book is mostly about how bad the Catholic Church is, which, you know, you're not going to find too much disagreement with me about that. They are doing very unbiblical things. They are, uh, you know, all the stuff that we could write an entire book about, the stuff that's blasphemous or um, just totally unscriptural that they do. It's mostly about, and another thing that they do is this, and another thing that they do is this, but it's not it's not actually dealing with what the text says and trying to interpret the text. And when it does, it's just cherry-picking verses that are commonly used to make that uh, uh, kind of uh, equation. For example, you know, the woman is wearing uh, purple, red, and scarlet, or, you know, the, the clothes that she's wearing, fine linen, purple, and scarlet. They say, well, you know, sometimes some of the clergy wears purple and scarlet so you know case closed and I think that that kind of stuff is important you know for we need to find examples of of that and what could this mean that she's wearing these colors because it does seem important um, but that's that's like put on a high pedestal you know there is a particular wardrobe in which purple and scarlet are worn that's you know one thing but then when you deal with the issues of the blood of the prophets are found in the in this city. And we have to consider this a city. So they have to say, well, it's Rome. But you can say with some certainty, because Jesus tells us that not only are is it impossible, as he says in uh, the book of Luke, and uh, I should have the reference in front of me that I don't, but he says, uh, I will go, you know, I have to go this day and the next because it is, uh, it cannot be that a prophet perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets. And then it says, the blood of all that are slain on the earth is found in this city. And there we have to say, well, all the blood that's slain on the earth, that has to be, you know, a, a kind of system. But again, even the Catholic Church, who came into existence, you know, relatively late in this whole scheme of Christians being persecuted and slain, um, is too small to incorporate this massive idea that all the blood of the slain is found in the city until you look in scripture when you say that jesus told jerusalem that they would be responsible for all the righteous blood shed on the earth not just he says from abel to zechariah i mean abel you know the son of adam, adam and eve that's pretty early so he's really reiterating the point that he said all the blood of the all the righteous bloodshed will be on you jerusalem so we have other places in scripture that uh, make this point so they so when they say it when they see blood of the prophets they have to say well you know no actual prophets were killed there but you know in 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 the new testament uh we are kings and priests or you know and and there's prophecy in in the church so they're kind of like prophets so and they kill prophets so therefore there you go that's the 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 interpretation of this and so they have to minimize scripture and sort of um, play up a non-profit prophet in, and in order to do that kind of thing. So most of it's centered around Mystery Babylon. And as many of you know, I just am pretty particular about the, I say in the book, 90 characteristics provided by John in Revelation 16, 17, and 18 about Mystery Babylon and that they all need to be dealt with, including the items that are brought to her, what she's saying, what she's doing. Um, so I just, I think that the the main th argument that they had, Mystery Babylon, is is them having a reason to see the Catholic Church or the Pope as the Antichrist. That is, he was killing their uh, brothers in Christ for preaching the true gospel, something that is su supposed to that the Antichrist himself is supposed to do, um, and minimizing all the things that don't agree with that. So just cherry-picking in order to prove a point. So the reason a lot of people believe this today, even though that the Catholic Church isn't killing believers for preaching the true gospel anymore, and hasn't for some time, is primarily because of the early writers, like the Puritans and the Reformers, who 
were essentially copying and pasting their eschatology from those that were from before them that were dealing with this kind of persecution and the respect for those writers the reformers and the puritans and a lot of people are simply just saying look my favorite commentator whether it be john calvin or or luther or uh you know any number of of these early writers i respect everything that they say so i'm also going to take what they believed about revelation 17 and 18 and copy and paste it so i also believe this too because they did and that is that is sometimes it works out for you sometimes it doesn't in this case i don't believe it does a caveat to this is that you will also get this from seventh day adventists who are really really serious about prophecy and a lot of the videos and teachings about prophecy that you see out there are sort of covert seventh day adventists a really common tactic in seventh day adventism is to talk about prophecy and hold prophecy conferences and never tell anybody that they are Seventh-day Adventists. And then once they get them in with their uh, interpretation of prophecy, then they start introducing Ellen G. White and all the rest of their doctrine. But you need to know that a lot of the stuff out there on YouTube or whatever is Seventh-day Adventist stuff that that literally can't not have the antichrist system be the roman catholic church because that would mean if it's not then ellen g white was wrong and that's just not a feasible option so the the carrying on of this doctrine is also in addition to as i mentioned before people that are just copying and pasting from the puritans it's also a a necessary doctrine of seventh day adventism that is being uh, uh, promoted covertly and I mean by that that they're not advertising that they're Seventh-day Adventists when they're uh, saying this the Seventh-day Adventists believe that any day now the Pope is going to enact what they call the National Sunday Law this is something that Ellen G. White said would happen so by uh, by extension it must happen for Seventh-day Adventism to be true so the National Sunday Law is always just on the horizon. I've talked about this before, but essentially what they're expecting to happen is the Pope is going to say, everybody needs to, to go to church on Sunday. Everybody in the world got to go to church on Sunday. And this, they say, is going to be the mark of the beast. And I think that's just way out there for lots of reasons. It doesn't, you have to so allegorize the mark of the beast to make going to church on Sunday, the mark of the beast. But in addition, it wouldn't actually constitute a breaking of the Sabbath, which is the whole thing that they're trying to say is happening with this, because the Sabbath law is in the Old Testament that you don't work on Saturday. Don't work on Saturday. That's the Sabbath law. Not go to go to church on Sunday. I mean, if if the Pope really was going to force everybody to break the Sabbath, he would have to tell everybody to work on Saturday. He would have to have some kind of program that forces everyone to work on Saturday. That's how he would do it, not tell, by telling them to go to church on Sunday. That would have little or nothing to do with whether or not they worked on Saturday. So, I mean, the whole idea is just very, very difficult. But anyway, that's sort of getting off the point. The point is, is that Seventh-day Adventists are super, 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 super anti the catholic church and think that they are the antichrist system that going to church on sunday is the mark of the beast and all this stuff that revolves around the catholic church so that is also a reason why this view exists today in the uh, youtube sphere a few other reasons i don't know if i'll give a top 10 list here or anything like uh, was requested by jp but i will give some reasons the other ideas that uh, argue against this are things like his his rise to power, as described in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, different things, show that it's just not consistent with the idea of it being a pope or the Catholic Church or whatever. He has to um, subdue three kings of a ten-nation confederacy. He seems to rise to power as either a political or military leader or both. Um, and this whole concept of his sort of political-military machinations uh, doesn't seem consistent with the idea of it being 
the Roman Catholic Church. It just doesn't seem right. I know people argue, you know, they're doing all kinds of things behind the scenes and whatever, and that may be true, but I just don't see how in any way, shape, or form, you know, coming from a nation with ten kings and subduing three of them and all the rest of that can possibly play out. It seems to suggest that this person is coming to power in the same way that a lot of military leaders or political leaders come to power, a very uh, natural way, and uh, that just doesn't seem to be consistent. The As I've been arguing in this upcoming book, False Christ, there's so much about the Antichrist that is in the Jewish context. I do think you can argue strongly that he will be received by the Jews as Christ. Uh, John 5 um is it 43, I've come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. But it is impossible to believe that the Jews will see the light of Catholicism one day. I mean, that just is... Um, I mean, it doesn't matter if if the Pope started just doing miracles all the time and, you know, doing impossible feats of miracles and whatever else. It would just be seen by the Jews as demonic or idolatrous or whatever or just a false teaching it's just so antithetical to believe that the jews are going to become catholics for not just historical reasons i mean they've got enough bad blood with the inquisitions and everything else the catholic church has done more um, to against the jews than any muslim nation and it just just seems totally impossible another idea is that you know he's sitting in the temple of God declaring himself to be God here the reformers and things would argue that uh, you know the, the temple is the church and they're sitting in the temple declaring themselves to be God you know the vicar of Christ and these kinds of things they have to say well vicar of Christ means kind of in place of Christ so they're kind of claiming to be God by doing that and you know that takes some some funny business to get there I understand that that's a terrible thing that they're doing that and everything but it doesn't seem consistent with what Paul and Jesus are talking about with the abomination of desolation you you know Paul and Jesus are asking us to go back to Daniel and look at Daniel when they describe this they're not doing it allegorically they're saying this in the most clear doctrinal terms that this guy is going to sit in a temple in Jerusalem declare himself to be God start a persecution of those that don't um, believe that he is who he's claiming to be <clears throat> and you know you could argue and i know that uh, those that take a more literal approach to this would say well one day you know the the roman catholic church is going to gain control of the temple mount and build a temple and then sit in it and all this stuff that is a good deal of speculation that seems uh, just as unlikely as the jews accepting roman catholicism that the jews would let the Roman Catholics build a temple um, in Jerusalem. Now, of course, that is possible to happen, but it doesn't seem likely, and it has to all deal with these hypotheticals that would happen. It doesn't just because the Catholic Church is getting land in in Israel and stuff like that, which they are, which makes sense. They've always they've always done that. I just uh, got done with a book about the history of Jerusalem and the control over their holy sites, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and all the different things that they have within Jerusalem are really important, you know, tourist sites for one, but they are, there's a, a really important stake in, in very particular sites in Jerusalem, and that's usually what's being talked about with these uh, ideas that they're gaining land in Jerusalem and, and Netanyahu is making deals with them about these sites. It's these sites, the ones that are major, major tourist attractions, that have always been the focus of attention with the Catholic Church in Jerusalem. It doesn't seem likely, and there's no good theological reason why the Catholic Church would want the Temple Mount. <clears throat> and how would they get it anyway from the Muslims? The Jews can't even get it for themselves. Uh, they don't have the authority to give it to the Catholic Church. I mean, technically they do, but then that just starts a holy war against the Catholic Church, and it just isn't good business to do that. Anyway, the whole concept of him doing that just doesn't seem consistent with it being the Catholic Church. It just It seems consistent with... Um, Jewish and Christian eschatology. A, the, the Christians are expecting Jesus to one day build a temple, sit in it, declare himself to be God because he is God. That's a part of the messianic mission that we as Christians know, and that people will flow to Jerusalem 
uh, offering praise and oblation to the true Christ. That's, that's genuine Christian doctrine, and it's genuine Jewish doctrine. The Jews have the same scriptures in the Old Testament. They believe that that's going to happen, the Messiah, <clears throat> or they would see it. Uh, they, they see it as the Messiah ruling from the temple and uh, the Gentile nations coming to uh, pay their respects and all this stuff. They see all that stuff happening. So when the Antichrist is said to do exactly that, what can we make of it except that he is attempting to fake what is really supposed to happen before it happens? Um, it just seems so consistent with the expectations of Jews and Christians, his actions, that is, the Antichrist's actions, that it's it's difficult to to see a need to so thoroughly allegorize that as to make it, you know, something else. Another point is that the covenant that's made uh, between the Antichrist and the Jews is always seen, and I argue against this, as a peace agreement. And so, therefore, people that hold to this view, any kind of political dealings at all whatsoever with the Roman Catholic Church and the Jewish government, is considered to be here it is here's the covenant you know it's all going down right now but if you read about the covenant and i argue about this at length in the book but um the notable point here is that the covenant necessarily must uh, begin the daily sacrifices and that again just I mean, you have to just go way out in left field to envision the roman catholic church making some kind of agreement to start the daily sacrifices in the temple. Um, and, you know, why would they theologically do that? Even if they, you know, wanted to make peace in Jerusalem and say, hey, if we do this, if we give the Jews what they want, you know, they can start making their little sacrifices again, then they'll be happy and maybe that will make peace with the Muslims. That's certainly not about that. I mean, that would not make peace with the Muslims. That would absolutely infuriate the Muslims and cause a major war. So it certainly wouldn't make good sense in a political reason to, hey, let's just go ahead and make a peace agreement so they can start their daily sacrifices. Nor, uh, ostensibly, the Roman Catholic Church is supposed to be Christian, right? That doesn't believe that animal sacrifices are necessary anymore. So theologically, for them to say, hey, you know, we wanted to make a, a little agreement with you guys, let you uh, start some sacrifices again, that is totally antithetical to what they uh, state about the, the animal sacrifices. There is no need for them to do that. So it would be going against their theological stance. So when you envision these kinds of things happening, if you take a literal view of this, and, and you also believe it's the Roman Catholic Church, you have to concoct these wild uh, anti-political, anti-theological scenarios that uh, are supposed to happen, as opposed to, um, I think, the clear teaching of it, um, as I go through the book, if you want to, uh, to uh, check that out, you can check out the book, which will be out any day now, well, in a week or two. Then we have ideas of the the Antichrist in Daniel 11 being attacked by the Muslim world and then completely crushing them with its military, with his military, and then planting his palace in Jerusalem. I mean, that is, you know, that, again, we have, if you, a person trying to take this literally would see, well, you know, the, the Catholic Church is trying to move to Jerusalem and all this kind of stuff that they're they sort of were forcing on this because they know they have to make this uh, happen. But it is, again, pretty darn inconceivable that the Catholic Church would abandon the Vatican and say, you know what, this isn't our capital anymore. Let's go to Jerusalem. Now, they may have outposts and, and embassies or whatever in Jerusalem, but to say that in the future the Catholic Church is going to abandon uh, the Vatican and move to Jerusalem, particularly right next to the to the temple, is is just not conceivable. In addition, if you want to carry this even further, you also have to imagine the Catholic Church having a massive army that has such military might that it can defend itself against a massive Muslim coalition, and not just defend itself, absolutely crush it to the point of the Muslim world cowering at their at the feet and completely subjected and giving all their stuff to the Catholic Church because they were so overwhelmingly uh, defeated in battle. This again, we have to just create all these things, these scenarios that are just so not happening. Now, I know a lot of people would say, well, Chris, this isn't the Antichrist. You know, the Pope isn't the Antichrist. He's the false prophet to the Antichrist. And in this view, 
whoever the Antichrist is, you know, can be any number of things from a Muslim to an alien to, uh, to a political leader who's making peace and all this other stuff, but that he will use the Catholic Church as sort of the religious arm of his uh, whatever kingdom that looks like in that particular view. And so he doesn't need to fulfill all those, uh, um, you know, prophecies about the Antichrist. And that, I mean, I say that, first of all, I think that the false prophet calling down fire from heaven and doing all these miraculous things are consistent with Elijah. It, it makes a whole lot more sense if the Antichrist is, in fact, a, a, a false messiah. And as any messiah figure, whether that's a false messiah or uh, the genuine messiah, Jesus must have, which is a, a, a precursor um, of Elijah showing up. And I think he, Jesus, will uh, will not only have Elijah preceding his second coming, that is probably with the two witnesses, but he also had uh, an Elijah for those who would accept it with John the Baptist. So it's true that Elijah must come before the Messiah. And in Jewish belief, I think that the false prophet, by calling down fire from heaven, and I would submit also probably raising the dead uh, with the Antichrist's uh, mortal head wound, is going to be seen as that Elijah. So I think it's, first of all, a lot more consistent to see the false prophet as a genuine false prophet, as opposed to saying, well, in a sense, the Catholic Church is uh, like a prophet instead of a priest, and they are doing, you know, religious stuff to the Antichrist's political or military stuff. And um, again, it kind of comes to the point of, of do you really think that the Muslim world is going to accept a a um, Roman Catholic, you know, uh, uh, a version of the end times or the secular world or the rest of Christendom? I mean, it just seems like to me that it just seems so uh, impossible for the world to become Catholic in the end times. But again, I have to to say, well, it seems even more illogical that the world will be enthralled by a, a Jewish Messiah. It just has all the same kind of problems. But I would say to that, it doesn't seem that the Muslims really become Jewish. It seems that the Antichrist's main idea is to use the Muslim world to attack him so that he can defeat them and look like he's fulfilling the, the scriptures that uh, the Messiah must destroy the enemies of Israel. So they're just pawns in the game of the Antichrist uh, and using their antagonis antagonism toward the Jews to his benefit. Additionally, I would say that because a Jewish Messiah is true, like it has the thing that Satan always needs for a false teaching, a very strong kernel of truth to build upon. And in Mystery Babylon, it says that the world is made drunk by the fierceness or the, the passion of her fornication. She is fornicating so, so uh, passionately that is, she is worshiping this false uh, Christ as her Messiah so passionately that the world is made drunk by it. They are drawn into this. And, um, and of course, I do think that the Antichrist makes uh, it, it very impossible to not get along with the program with his Mark of the Beast system that he sets up that forces everybody to either get with the program or die, and people will join it by necessity if nothing else and i recognize that that also could apply to the other idea so i have i guess less strong opinions about the the false prophet being the pope but that's primarily because we know so little of the false prophet he's really only mentioned in um revelation 13 and i would submit also the olivet discourse matthew 24 etc with the warnings about the false Christ and false prophets. There's a few lines there, but we don't have a lot of information about the false prophet. So to to build this um, doctrine that the Pope will be the false prophet really requires a con constructing of an entire scenario about how that could work. And there are uh, a lot of different contradictory scenarios out there trying to, to force what it would look like if the Catholic Church was a false prophet to the Antichrist's you know, whatever, whether he's political, an alien, or or uh, uh, military, or Muslim, or whatever. There's just so many different things that have to, you know, scenarios about how it will play out 
that I think all suffer from the same general problems of minimizing the scriptures and maximizing uh, political or or scenarios that could make all that theory work, if that makes sense. So uh, I spent a lot more time on this subject than I was planning, but uh, we'll end it here and move on to the next one. Okay, the next question is about Satan indwelling the Antichrist. It says, my question is, how do we get to the conclusion that Satan indwells the Antichrist? This came up in conversation the other day, and we just couldn't think of the scripture to back it up. Well, I remember first hearing about this idea with Hal Lindsey, who pointed to the fifth trumpet when the uh, the entities that are let out of the abyss uh, come out of the abyss. They have an angel over them, or in charge of them, named Apollyon or uh, Abaddon, which translates essentially to the destroyer. And he says that that is Satan and that Satan is indwelling the Antichrist at that point. Now, first of all, it doesn't say anything in that scripture about Satan indwelling the Antichrist. So that's not a really good proof text. In addition, I argue in other places that Abaddon, that is the destroying angel that has control over these beings, is, number one, not said to come out of the abyss himself. It's not necessary for Abaddon or Apollyon to be in charge of those uh, uh, entities. I mean, it is he is in charge of them, but he is not necessarily one of them. The, the text doesn't say that he came out of the abyss himself. The idea I think is more likely with that scenario is that, just like in all the other trumpets, there are angels that are directing the destruction, the day of the Lord judgments. And they are, in other places, clearly good angels that God is directing. And I think that we see this idea of a destroyer, and he must be bad. But the destroying angel all throughout the Old Testament is clearly a good angel in the sense that he is from God doing God's bidding. We don't we don't see the destroying angel as, uh, you know, whether it's in Exodus or whether it's in, uh, the you know, David with the census and all that stuff. He's not a, a demon in the abyss in those areas, and I don't see why he has to be here either. I think... Another kind of proof text for that, or proof idea, is that God is telling them, this guy is, is he has, he's king over these guys. He is keeping them from, number one, destroying anybody who has the, the mark of God on their heads. Uh, they are doing, he's getting these demons who are in the abyss, have been trapped in the abyss for a long time and are let out for this purpose. He's getting them to do God's bidding, which is to... Uh, execute the day of the Lord judgments on the wicked and only the wicked, not the righteous. So that text is is not adequate for this uh, idea that Satan dwells the Antichrist. It is clear that Satan gives his power to the Antichrist, that the Antichrist um, derives, number one, his power for war, that is, he, he fights the nations with the help of a god of fortresses in Daniel 11. And I think that that is uh, seen also in Revelation 13, where the dragon, that is Satan, gives him his power and authority. And I think that that's one and the same, the, the god of fortresses and the dragon, because they're doing the same thing. That is, giving him power. So... So he's certainly getting his power from Satan. Does that mean that he's indwelled by Satan himself? Maybe, or maybe not. It does appear that there's a, a direct connection to the Antichrist essentially worshipping the uh, the dragon in several places. That kind of gives that impression that he is he is that's his god that he's honoring with gold, silver, and precious stones. That's an interesting part of this doctrine that the Antichrist is paying true homage to a god, but it is Satan from whom he derives his power. You can't make a direct argument that he is um, indwelled by Satan from just those verses that he is deriving his power from Satan, though it's not it's not impossible that he uh, is indwelled by Satan either. So it's a difficult thing. I personally believe that the image of the beast in the temple is indwelled by Satan. That is that because it describes the worship in the temple with the image of the beast as um, worshiping the dragon 
and through the beast. I mean, the, the image is of, of the Antichrist, but, and it, you know, has the power to sort of come to life and to kill those who don't worship it. The image of the beast is really strange, but it's not the Antichrist himself. It does appear to be an image of the Antichrist. And I believe that Satan is indwelling that for the purpose of receiving the worship of the world. I think that's the image of the beast is sort of the conduit in which the world literally worships um, Satan. Um, so, so it's, it, I, I, if, in my opinion, if Satan is indwelling anything, it's the image of the beast and not the beast himself. However, the other kind of argument, I guess, would be in Revelation 12, when it's talking about um, Satan being thrown down from heaven. And by the way, this is contrasted to his coming up from the abyss. So which is it? Is he getting thrown down from heaven or is he coming up from the abyss? Um, but in any way, Revelation 12 says, um, Therefore rejoice, O heavens who dwell in them, woe into the inhabitants of the earth. Well, it starts off earlier by saying that a war broke out in heaven. <clears throat> Michael and his angels fought with a dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who de de deceives the whole world. He was cast to earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I think that we can uh, tie this event. There are many falls of Satan, but this particular event seems to be referring to the midpoint when the image of the beast is set up. And I say that because when it says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows he has a short time. That short time is defined in the in the and two verses later when it says the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she may, might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time time and half a time from the presence of the serpent so and then it gives um you know this is consistent in the book of revelation talking about the three and a half year period it mentions it as 42 months 1260 days in which uh he has this authority to do this thing to to persecute the Christians, which is what it says. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went out to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he is, this is where people say, well, he's indwelling the Antichrist because if Satan is cast down uh, from heaven, and then he is said here in Revelation to be uh, making war with the with those who have the testimony of Jesus Christ, then we we can infer that he is the one doing it. And I think that's probably the strongest argument that he is actually indwelling the Antichrist. But again, it's not necessary because it could be um, like in other places in the book of Revelation where things are attributed to Satan that are that are really about his um, doing things behind the scenes. Like, for example, in Revelation 20, when he's let out of his uh, prison, he deceives the nations, Gog and Magog, to go to war. Um, and that that is not Satan himself, you know, putting on a helmet and a breastplate and, a, and getting a sword. It's him deceiving Gog and Magog to go to war. Yet it's, in a sense, attributed to his doing through deception. In this case, his it's the dragon who wants to kill the believers of Jesus Christ, not just the Antichrist. The Antichrist is so utterly devoted to Satan that he does it because Satan wants him to. So it's 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 not explicit that Satan has been dwelling the Antichrist, and it could just be that because of the Antichrist's devotion and obvious uh, connection through uh, worship and the rest of it, that he is doing the bidding of Satan. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's possessed by Satan. So... It's kind of yes and no. The, the proof texts for this indwelling of uh, the Antichrist, I believe, are insufficient to say for certain that he is indwelled by the Antichrist. And it could simply mean that he's doing, uh, you know what I mean, that he's indwelled by Satan. Um, it could simply mean that he is doing the will of Satan in these, uh, in these acts. Okay, this one is from Robert. He says, I am a pre-trib believer and have been looking at your position recently. I've been studying the pre-wrath position since the early 90s when I was introduced to Marv Rosenthal's book. I do have a question for you. 
to at least understand what your viewpoint specifically is. Ultimately, what is the danger for me as a pre-trib believer not holding to your position? And I would add to this question another question that came in that says the following from Alan. Views other than the pre-wrath position do not allow the proponent to be prepared for the persecution of the Antichrist, thus putting them in jeopardy of apostasy and loss of salvation. Do you think that those other positions and false doctrines and the teachers of those views are false teachers? How do you approach brothers who hold a non-pre-wrath view when they have studied the pre-wrath position, yet continue in a view and push it on others, some for job security, money, position, status, etc.? Is the continued pushing of the pre-trib view actually a blinding of the mind in effort to set up more believers for apostasy in the last days? I think there's a unifying theme with these two questions that I want to address. In the first one, he was saying that he's studied the pre-wrath position, and Bala accounts seems to to agree with it to an extent, but he's asking essentially, what's the danger for me just continuing to hold to the pre-trib position? And the other question is essentially asking, what about those who have studied the pre-wrath position, know it to be true, but continue to preach and teach the pre-tribulational position because of job security? And I have a, a testimony about this that I've mentioned in other places. I was engaged with talking uh, to a pastor of a super big megachurch, super, super famous pastor that, um, you know, talked about some of the things that he w had said before about different uh, difficult rapture passages. And in the course, he watched the uh, video that I have about the pre-wrath rapture and stuff. And his, his response was that, um, okay, I can see that this view is valid. But can you tell me why I should teach this position? And the underlying sort of part of that question, why should I teach this position, was very loaded. Because in this particular denomination, you lose your job and you lose, you know, your church and, and everybody's mad at you and the rest of it. You lose everything if you teach a position other than the pre-tribulational position. So this person was saying, yeah, okay, I can see this is valid, but, you know, why should I lose everything for this position? And I think that is is a good question. So what are the reasons or what are the dangers of of the pre-tribulational position? And is it a, a false teaching? Are they false teachers? Well, of course, the people that believe it and... I, being a for, former pre-tribulationalist, when I was challenged with pre-tribulationalism about the, the difficult uh, aspects of it, I would, I was so convinced that it was right. I mean, there wasn't any question in my mind that it was right. So when challenged, I just, you know, went to Rapture Ready or, um, you know, one of my favorite pre-trib teachers and just saw what they said about that verse, copied, pasted, put it in the email, said, Here's the answer to your question. See you later. Oftentimes, I didn't even read thoroughly what the answer was, let alone think about it uh, with any any depth. I just, here's the answer, copy and paste, send. Now this person will understand the truth of the pre-trib position. So I certainly couldn't be considered a false teacher for doing that, and most people that believe the pre-tribulational position certainly can't either. It's just, it's so unquestionably true there's no possible way that anything else could be true and and part of my belief back then about that was the the utter impossibility of the other positions that i knew about for example the the post-trib uh, situation or or the mid-trib required such uh were so problematic hermeneutically that they were in, in effect an impossible scenario. So if I only had those three possibilities for the rapture, then the pre-tribulational position had to be correct. But when I saw the pre-wrath position and everything just clicked, it was like, oh, I see. So back to the original idea of what we're trying to do here. What are the dangers of believing in a pre-tribulational rapture? Well, first I'll start with some general stuff. I think that if it's true that's all you really need to know, then you should believe it if it's true. And one of the immediate benefits for that is that the Bible does seem to uh, come alive because there's, this is not an issue which is uh, uh, just very sparse in the Bible. 
the the admonitions of of uh, Bible writers to the people they're writing to to endure persecution because of a great hope and uh, talking about the day of the Lord. If you understand the day of the Lord correctly, that is the wrath of God that they will not endure. Uh, however, they are uh, expected to endure the persecution that the Antichrist will uh, will inevitably inflict on them. It opens up a lot of information, not just about uh, understanding what, what they're talking about and, and making that come alive, but it also um, helps you to, to count the cost. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you need to count the cost and really see what that means to you. And there's just so much talk about that. Is specifically in that section about counting the cost. He's talking about you need to be ready to to die for me and lose your life for my sake. And the counting the cost is is primarily spoken of there in terms of your taking up the cross, an an instrument of of execution. And he goes on to sort of expand that to make sure that that's his his primary goal that you need to be willing to die for me and if you're not willing to die for me and be tortured in the most heinous way that is the cross then you need to consider that before you follow me jesus turned a lot of people away um when they said hey i'll follow you he said are you sure you'll follow me now of course most of the generations of the church uh, have endured persecution for his sake and we haven't and so it should, generally speaking, be something that, you know, everybody would give lip service to in America. Yeah, yeah, persecution could happen, but we're so far removed from it. But it takes on a new uh, meaning for Americans, especially, and those who are so far removed from any type of actual persecution in the sense of being tortured to death, that um, that it is a feasible possibility if you think you're in the end times and that the Antichrist is going to show up at any time, and that when he does, he will require your life or your fleeing at the very least. And there's no no you know idea that you will be able to flee forever from him. Anyway, the idea is that you need to be ready to endure that in terms of your discipleship and following of Christ. And I think for me, that made a big difference in my life. Like that is the 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 seriousness of following Christ. Am I willing to do that? And when you mentally assent to that idea, yes, I would sit there and be tortured and not deny Christ. Because that's what the torturers always want you to do, to deny Christ, to apostatize, to leave Christianity, to change your views and to live it out from then on. You, As far back as the, the Jewish persecutions and the, the Roman emperors' persecutions and the and even in the Inquisitions and the Catholic Church uh, they always wanted you to recant, to to deny Christ. That's the focus of their persecutions. And in addition to that, the Bible speaks so much about that very issue. If you took out all the all the verses where Jesus is talking about how to die for him, Matthew 10, the last half of Matthew 10 is a good example. There, There's just so much information about what he wants you to do in the face of persecution. Don't deny me. And all these verses... You know, I'm a firm believer in once saved, always saved, in the sense that you can't sin your way out of the covenant, is what I always say. You can't you can't sin and then, oh, well, that's it, you're out of the covenant. That is not possible in my view based on the way that I understand the gospel and it being based on the righteousness of Christ. That's the transaction that was made. But when you gather all the proof texts for losing your salvation together. You, you gather them all up and you, this is what you're going to use. You're going to argue against one saved, always saved. Then the context of all those verses are all about apostasy. You know, the Hebrews verses that people are often use in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, they always say, well, here's here's a good argument against it. But the Hebrew people, the, the, the letter was written to people who were being persecuted and that persecution was giving them the option to leave Christianity, to deny Christ in order to save their lives or to save them from torture. And so in context, it's about apostasy. Don't apostatize in the face of persecution. And you go back to, again, Matthew 10 and all these other verses that, that make people think, oh, well, there seems to be suggestion that you can lose your salvation, but it's only in the context of apostasy. That is to say, you can say 
because you don't, you know, you don't want to lose your life. You don't want to be tortured. And so you might say, you know what? I am going to just deny this Christian thing. You know, maybe it wasn't true anyway. I don't know, but I'm going to just deny it, save my life, deal with it later. And that, I guess, is important to make the caveat. I don't know. Maybe the people that apostatize in the end times, because that's what great apostasy means. It means leaving Christianity. Those who were identifying as Christians, they apostatized. The word is that they left the Christian faith because of the persecution. The And that's what Jesus says, a great apostasy is coming. That doesn't mean just a bunch of bad doctrine is coming, which is a pet peeve of mine that people use that word wrongly, but they're going to leave Christianity because of persecution. And he doesn't want that to happen. And he's very, very serious about it. And so again, the, maybe that's, maybe the people that left weren't really truly a part of Christian Christianity. Anyway, you can say that if it makes you feel better or whatever, but it does seem like that there is a true sense of them being saved in the Hebrews, uh, uh, verses it even kind of they've tasted of the fruits of the Holy Spirit and the, yet they still apostatize they they left Christianity so it's a it's a genuine danger apostasy is a genuine danger whether you think it's just you know people that were feigning Christianity or that they were genuine Christians apostasy is the biggest danger for the Christian church in the time of the Antichrist so with that in mind it the dangers can be number one if you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, a core tenet of that belief is that the rapture happens before the 70th week of Daniel begins, meaning that there is there is no way that the church will encounter the Antichrist, that they won't be persecuted by the Antichrist, number one, but they won't even see the Antichrist. So if a genuine Antichrist shows up, then a preacher believer will not be able to accept that person that that person is an antichrist is the antichrist because uh it's not doctrinally possible for him to be the antichrist so that's danger and then the obvious one that was brought up here is that the the preparation mentally for the persecution and and I kind of waffle back and forth on this because I think that a true believer in Christ is is like it says you know it, it's it's a deception so great that even the very elect uh, if it were possible, would be deceived. So there's this idea that the very elect can't be deceived by it. And so there's a sense in which I, I think that it's, it, whether you believe in the pre-tribulation or rapture or not, your mental preparation for that persecution will matter less than I think some people say. That being said, that's talking about the elect and those that apostatize in the end times and get the mark and worship the Antichrist to save their lives that were Christians before that were are not the elect by definition. They may have, you know, we could go into the theological, were they elect before? Apparently not. Were they just feigning Christianity? Whatever. The, the idea is that a bunch of people will apostatize. So of that group, how many of those people were pre-tribulational before? Um, we don't know, of course, but I think that's the danger is the apostasy in the end times. The preparation mentally may have helped the elect not be deceived. I don't know. It's a tough question, but it is a genuine uh, problem that if you were all of a sudden a pre-tribulational person would be shattered in so many different ways by this. Number one, they'll be disillusioned that the rapture didn't happen like in the Thessalonian letters. You know, he's arguing with them. Look, they think they're in the day of the Lord. And they thought they were in the day of the Lord for good reason. Um, but but he's saying, look, that hasn't happened. The Antichrist hasn't been revealed yet. Uh, nor has the apostasy, the great apostasy happened. So you're not in the day of the Lord. Trust me, when the day of the Lord comes, we won't be here, basically. The resurrection will happen before the day of the Lord. So he is, he's admonishing these people who, who genuinely thought they were in it. They were in such disarray that, that Paul felt it necessary to write a, a letter explaining clearly again the doctrine that he apparently taught before about the resurrection and when it occurs and all the rest of it. So there's a shattering of first being disillusioned. Oh my goodness, the, everything the church taught me about the end times is wrong and this scrambling to try to figure out what is what is really true about it, all in the midst of this great uh, unparalleled persecution that 
they're you know wondering is there going to be a rapture now i mean i don't even understand what's going on what's going on you know there's a lot of uh additional baggage there that is going to be very problematic that they should be just focusing on the the uh enduring to the end as the revelation uh letters to the seven churches admonish them to that's the 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 perseverance during that time throughout the persecution of the antichrist is so important and so much time is spent on that just doctrine after doctrine after doctrine telling people about how to endure that kind of persecution so though i on one hand minimize the lack of preparation that a pre-tribulational believer would have during that time i think it is still significant enough to say yeah that would be a really big problem and it may ultimately disillusion them to such an extent that they throw it off altogether because it will certainly be incentive to uh to save their lives and, and the rest of it and i think another aspect of that is that since I believe that the the deception of the Antichrist it's not going to be as blatant as I think a lot of people say you know a guy with horns and doing all this bad stuff and wow you this guy is clearly the wrong guy I think that you'll have a guy who is either claiming to be Jesus himself and the return of Christ or a uh, the Messiah who actually fulfilled the 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 idea of destroying Israel's enemies and setting up Jerusalem as the capital city of the world and all the stuff that Christians expect to happen. So in other whatever way that happens, it's going to be seductive. Okay, so if a person, you know, found out that hey, this is the end times and I haven't been raptured and the Antichrist seems to have been destroyed because they'll believe that the Antichrist destroyed the Muslim world and that was the Antichrist and now it's all over and the millennium has begun. So, the, so, And the Antichrist surely is going to play up that idea that, you know, this was really, you know, there was some stuff in the Bible and this is the true interpretation of whatever. So the people are going to have a very Christian paradigm in which a true Christian paradigm, all of it is ultimately going to be true. Jesus really will destroy the enemies of Israel. And he really will make Jerusalem the capital city of the world. And he really will, uh, you know, do all the stuff in the millennium that's said to, but the antichrist is going to have a very Christian veneer, a very true doctrinal old Testament seeming occurrence, seem, seeming fulfillment of the old Testament scriptures. So, they're already going to think, well, the rapture thing wasn't true. So what else isn't true, you know? And so, so it's not, it's not as though they'll be, it'll be so obvious that he's bad. That's the point. He's not going to come in a, uh, in an obvious bad way. He's going to become either claiming to be the return of Christ and doing all the things that Christ is supposed to do in revelation and, uh, 19 and 20 and the rest of it. So, um, is it a false teaching? You know, I've always taken a very uh, um, uh, politically correct approach on the idea that, look, it's not that big a deal, and it's not a false teaching in, in the sense of, um, you know, it's something that we need to pay a lot of attention to. But at the same time, the more I think about it, the more dangerous it does seem. And when you consider that it's just brand new, I mean, it it is not even a hundred years that has been available uh for people to believe and it's it you have to admit regardless of whatever you believe that it's it's truly seductive in the sense that if i could choose how this would all play out i would choose the pre-tribulational rapture because it just is it is very very helpful to my uh, sense of 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 security and the rest of it so i will fight to a degree uh, even even in face of scriptures that seem to contradict it, to make it true because I want it to be true. And any time that kind of thing happens, it's dangerous. It's the same thing with the hell doctrines. People will fight all and, and say all kinds of unbiblical stuff because they really wish that something was different about the doctrine of hell. And so they're motivated to to see scriptures in a different way. And I think that's what's happening with the pre-tribulational view. And so for that reason, I do think it is more dangerous and beneficial to the Antichrist than I previously thought. And if you want to know more about it, I would recommend, first of all, the video that I have called uh, The Pre-Wrath Rapture, uh, Matthew 24. Um, I can't remember what it's called. Just Google Pre-Wrath Rapture and look for that on my YouTube, um, the rapture puzzle solved with Matthew 24, but also books. If you're interested in it, it's really important to read, um, books 
to learn about it. There's a few that I would recommend. Alan Kirshner has his uh, book out now called Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord. Very helpful book for people wanting to learn about it. I have gotten a lot of uh, good information from uh, Robert Van Campen's book called Rapture Questions An Answered Plain and Simple. That is a very, very uh, good book, Rapture Questions Answered Plain and Simple by Robert Van Campen. And also, you know, you've got the standards like Marvin Ro Rosenthal's The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church. I have a, a little ebook about the pre-wrath rapture that, uh, quite honestly, I've been thinking about taking down. It's been super, super popular, but I never really went through the process of trying to, you know, fix the typos and all the stuff. So I'm kind of embarrassed about it being so highly ranking. But on the one hand, I think, well, you know, at least some information about it's getting out. And anyhow, um, so the, so dig into this if you have any questions about the pre-wrath rapture, because the biggest problem that I've seen with the pre-wrath rapture issue is that there's just so much disinformation about it. If you're inclined to Google the pre-wrath rapture and then look for the pre-tribulational responses to it, which is what anybody that wants to believe anything will do, they'll say, well, what am I, uh, the people that I believe say against it? That's usually a good place to start in terms of uh, research, and I don't dissuade you from doing that. But if you actually understand what pre-wrath is teaching, then you'll see something very clear when you look at the pre-tribulational responses to the pre-wrath rapture, and that is they are not representing it correctly. They're knocking down straw man after straw man after straw man. They're saying, it believes this crazy thing. And we know that's not true. And pre-wrath people are like, what in the world? We don't believe that. And, and they're not understanding it correctly. So it'll help you to learn both sides of it in the quest for determining what is true about this. All right, we're going to wrap up this episode, and I want to thank everybody that has submitted a question, and again, want to encourage you to submit your questions to make this podcast better and more interesting. So please do that at the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. And while you're there, go ahead and sign up for the email list. That is all really, really beneficial to me. And of course, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to the RevelationsRadioNetwork.com where you'll find lots of like-minded um, uh, uh, podcast like this one. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains eight gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry, or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.